0: Is it ever justified for a follower of Christ to be angry at someone or at a particular circumstance? How about when a car going 140 kilometers an hour cuts you off on Sheikh Zayed Road, only then to slow down right in front of you so they can make their exit? Or how about when your kids eat most of your leftover birthday cake? Is it okay for you to be angry that they forgot to save some for you? Or what about when your favorite football team loses in the World Cup next month? They lose all three matches, and they're kicked out of the tournament. Is it okay to be angry and throw your remote control at the TV? (laughs) We can laugh at these examples, but how about some more serious ones? Is it okay for a Christian to be angry when their health is failing and they're in miserable pain? Is it okay to be angry with what seems to be injustice as people are suffering all around the world? Or how about when your boss treats you unfairly at work? Is it okay to be angry at him or at her? Now, while we can't look at each of these examples today, we do know that the New Testament does in fact say that there is justifiable anger. James does not forbid anger when he says, Let every man be slow. To anger, But he also warns us that the anger of man does not reveal the righteousness of God. Likewise, Paul also admits that anger has a place in the life of a Christian. He says, be angry, but then how swiftly he adds, but do not sin. It is as if Paul was putting up a warning sign at the entrance of a dangerous path. Anger is always trembling on the verge of sinfulness. Sometimes Paul himself got fired up to controversy, especially when the truth of the gospel was compromised or threatened. He would use very strong language like accursed when speaking of those who preached a different gospel. He even says as he opposed Peter face to face in front of many when Peter's actions sent a message that threatened the gospel, he opposed Peter in anger Because the gospel was compromised. It is in this same type of situation that gave rise to Paul's explosive material in the ongoing or in the opening verses of Philippians chapter 3. The wording will take us by surprise. They stand in contrast with the gentle and joyous language which characterizes the letter. If you will turn with me uh, to Philippians uh, chapter 3, We'll continue on in our study of this great book and we'll see that Paul is in fact angry and he has every right to be angry. He is fuming and in his anger he has an important message for the Philippians and for us today. But before he starts with his passionate message, he says some opening words to this section in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul begins with the words finally. There have been a lot of jokes leveled at preachers because of the word finally. <laughs> Don Carson tells a story of the alleged child who asks his dad what the preacher meant when he said finally in his sermon, and the father muttered in reply. Absolutely nothing, son. <laughs> well, that's often the case with preachers, isn't it? <laughs> but Paul here is merely moving to the second half of his letter. The second half, he's marking a transition with the word finally. And he reminds us in this final half of the book to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord, which has been the central focus of the book, hasn't it? It's important, Paul wants us to realize that this joy that he's been talking about in this entire book only finds its source in Christ alone. And he tells them that he wants to remind them of some things that he told them before. Now, probably not things he's mentioned in the book of Philippians because there's no real close parallel to what he's about to talk about. He's probably referring to things He had taught them earlier in person and is now repeating for them. And his goal with this instruction, he says, is to safeguard them. He is concerned about them and doesn't want them to lose their joy in Christ Jesus. So he's going to tell them two things in this passage. Two things. He's going to tell them, one, he's going to warn them to get the gospel right. To get the gospel right. And secondly... He warns them to get their relationship with God right. So this morning, that's the outline, gospel and relationship. Two things. First, let's look at what he says about getting the gospel right. Look at what he tells them as a safeguard. Verses 2 and 3. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, this is strong language. This is angry language. It is shocking in its harshness and sobering in its serious concern for the Philippians. Now, translations of verse 2 actually summarize Paul's argument and say, watch out, one time in the beginning of the verse... But in the original languages, he actually says it three times. He repeats himself. He says, watch out, watch out, watch out. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those men who do evil. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. It's like those words are in bold for Paul. It's like a neon sign flashing that the Philippians are to watch out. They are to go to great lengths watching out for those enemies these enemies, Paul is almost certainly referring to a group called the Judaizers. Now, this was a group who were literally following Paul around, going to the churches Paul started and saying that, you know, if if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to follow Christ, you have to become a Jew first. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law. You have to follow the ceremonial feast days as a Jew. Then, then you can be a follower of Christ. Now, these guys are all over the New Testament. Paul devotes the whole book of Galatians to this problem. And he calls the Galatians who are following them, Oh, you foolish Galatians! And he opposes them fervently. He takes the whole book to oppose these folks. And Paul's word choice here shows that he is in fact angry and uncivil. He calls them dogs, workers of evil, mutilators. And he's not just coming up with with names on the spot. He's not just calling them names and poking fun at them. These accusations are very carefully formed and heavily ironic, actually. Let's, Let's look at them. First, he calls them dogs. Not the little cute patsy, the puddle, you, poodle you may have running around your house. These dogs were, were dirty. They were scavengers. But they're literally not dogs. Nor are they dogs in the sense that Jews used to name the Gentiles. So the Jewish name for Gentiles was, was dogs because they were unclean. But Paul is using that same word, insisting that these Judaizers following this ethnic purity, were in fact dirty. Those that said they were ethnically clean were in fact unclean. Likewise, he calls them men who do evil. The second thing, it's Paul's degrading name for those people who think they do good. They had thought they were the ones keeping the law and that God saved them because of it. But Paul says instead that though they thought themselves as men who do good, they were, in fact, in relying on their goodness, they were actually men who do evil. And third, and most shocking, he calls them mutilators of the flesh, those who think themselves as the circumcision. See, at the heart of the Judaizers' belief was, was circumcision, the sign that set them apart from the Gentiles. For many conservative Jews, the sign of entrance into the covenant was circumcision. It was so central that Jews often call themselves the circumcision party. It's summed up that they were the special people of God. But Paul won't call them that. He won't call them the circumcision. Instead, he calls them the mutilation, the mutilators of the flesh. Paul's implying that by marking themselves out in this way, they're really just like those pagan cults that insist on ritual gashes or wounds on the body. So Paul flips it in irony. Because what he's saying is for these Judaizers, Jesus plus nothing didn't equal everything. For them, it was Jesus plus, right? It was Jesus plus circumcision. It was Jesus plus the law. It was Jesus plus ritual, being a good person. It was Jesus plus something. And Paul says, you Judaizers who boast in your works, He says, now you who boast in your works, you have nothing on me. You got nothing on me. In verse 3, Paul's counterclaim is equally as strong. He says, it is we who are the circumcision. It is we who have the covenant name of God. Paul holds up verse 3. He says here what it means to be of the circumcision. The true people of God. They're not marked by some marking on their bodies, but they worship by the spirit of God. Not those who rely on ritual or law, but those who have been changed on the inside. Those who God has given a new heart to believe, whom God has given the Spirit. That these are God's people. These are whom God has transformed. These are whom God has saved. So instead of boasting in your ritual, we boast in Christ alone. Well, we see that Paul is not merely saying these things out of suppressed jealousy or as if he were frustrated that he didn't do any of these things or had no privilege of status. Look at what he says in verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul goes on to tell us that if anyone could put confidence in the flesh, if anyone could do what the Judaizers are saying, it was me. I could. And Paul takes a minute here and gives us his CV, doesn't it? He runs through his his CV and it's a good one. It's a great one. Most of us are familiar with, with CVs. It's a, it's a list of your merits. It's all the great things about you, your qualifications, your job experience. But what's the purpose of one? It's, it's to get you in somewhere, isn't it? It's to get you into some place, whether it's university or whether it's a new job. It's to get you in. So if you want a job, they won't hire you unless you have a good one. It's a list with the purpose to get you in somewhere? Look at how great I am. Look at how smart I am. How good I am. And Paul says, if anyone's going to get, in, gonna get into heaven based on a CV, it's going to be me. As men saw me, I was the best. And he lists out seven items on his CV here. The first four about his heritage, and then the last three about his accomplishments. Look at me, he says. First two things, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, which meant he wasn't a convert to Judaism, which meant he was a Jew from the beginning, even better than the Judaizers who were circumcised later on. And he says he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which meant he was one of the two tribes who was faithful to the house of David. David, we read later in the Old Testament. He was talking about racial purity here, which was extremely important. In his day and place, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, this was important because many Jews were Hebrew on the surface, but inside they were really Greeks. They were really Hellenized. But Paul grew up speaking Hebrew. Both his parents were were Hebrew. He was racially pure, he was culturally pure according to Jewish standards. And he was a Pharisee, not just a Jerusalem country club Jew sitting on the sidelines while everybody else worshiped God, everybody else did the rituals. He was a card-carrying member of the strictest branch of their religion, the Pharisees. So, so Paul followed the law. He had zeal, he was an activist in their movement. And finally, according to righteousness, he was faultless. He kept the law. Those on the outside looked in and he appeared blameless. Well, let's, let's roll this out in modern language for us. Paul says, you have reason to boast. Well, I have all the more. I have never missed a Friday school or church service. I've memorized most of the New Testament. I've shared the gospel with every single one of my neighbors. I've never said a cuss word in 25 years except invented Christian cuss words like holy moly and other things. (laughs) I've never seen an 18 and above movie except one about Jesus being crucified. I have never listened to secular music ever. Just you 2 and... Maybe that's Christian music. I don't know. <laughs> Look at what I've done. I've never missed a quiet time. Never. And Paul is saying, who cares? That's what Paul is saying. Who cares? Paul's telling us that his CV was all a lie. It was fraud. It was a con game to get him into the best Jewish circles. And he was deceived. And in that deception, others were deceived, being made to think that this could get you into heaven and achieve joy. Because the truth is, it isn't based on your CV. That's how both Paul and the jailer could be saved. Remember the jailer from the first day of the Philippian church plant and the first day of our church plant? We met him. He was the guy beating Paul. He had a terrible CV. He was a jailer, the most commonplace, duty filled job on the planet. Not of the chosen people of God. He was a Gentile. He was beating his prisoners. He had nothing that Paul had on his CV. Nothing at all. He would surely have lost out to Paul for every job, for every reward. Every award, there was nothing he was more qualified for. And yet this man, the Bible says, who got nothing, who had nothing, received everything. In the same way Paul had the perfect CV, both of these men ended up in the same place. Both of them had nothing. Both of them came to know Christ. Because what Paul is saying is it isn't based on your CV. The secret is that it was all based on Christ's. CV. Christ's accomplishments. You became a Christian if you follow Christ when you realize that your only righteousness is what God gives to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me ask you, what are you placing your trust in this morning? What are you banking on to bring you joy in this life? Is it coming from the right family, going to the right university, coming from the right country, ethnic heritage? Is it that you have talents or good works, whether you're religious or perhaps it's your achievements? Whatever you're banking on, it is just one big con game. I urge you today to put your confidence in Christ alone. John G. Patton, a minister to the New Hebrides though we've mentioned before, one day was struggling to find the local word that would translate into faith. And failing to find one, he was actually interrupted by someone in great trouble and needing of help. The man said, please, may I come and lean heavily upon you? And Patton realized right there that faith in Christ Is just that. It's leaning heavily upon Christ. Not your own CV. Not your personal accomplishments. I urge you today, if you're here and you haven't leaned upon Christ, I urge you today to lean heavily upon him. Turn from your sins. Christ came down on the earth and lived the perfect life, dying to forgive you of your sins if you would only relinquish your earthly pursuits. If you'd only relinquish that which you have clung to and lean on Christ, trust in him. I urge you to do that today. Get the gospel right in your own life. So Paul is telling us, yeah, yeah, I have a great CV. But not only does it not save, look at what he says in verse 7 and 8. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the suppressing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul presents us here with a profit-loss ledger. If you're an accountant or in finance, you'll appreciate what Paul is doing here. He uses the language of the accounting world to explain the change in his life. He describes it on a profit loss statement. You write on the top of your ledger, when you do this, you write all your profits. And at the bottom, you write all your liabilities. And then you subtract the liabilities from the profit and you see your net profit. You see your bottom line. Paul used to consider his zeal, his nationality as profit. He felt like God would accept him based on what his bottom line was. But here's what he's saying. He's trying to unpack these reasons for for us to pursue Christ at all costs. Because he's saying that if you get all these things, if you clean up your life on the outside and you never struggle again, you never struggle with lust, pride, you go to church, you read your Bible, but you don't get Jesus, you've lost. Paul's saying you've lost, you've lost. Who cares if you get all those things right? But he's telling us, don't let those exterior things be your goal. Don't let it be your goal. I'll be a good person. I'll live like this. Paul's saying, let your goal be him. Let your goal be Christ. So he says, I count my CV as rubbish. See, those things that I counted as profit are actually loss. Without Jesus, I had, not only did I have nothing, but I had loss. So he says, I count my CV as rubbish. They're mostly good things, but next to Christ, garbage. Garbage. Paul's view of himself turned on his head and he says in verse 9, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now it has been said that Christianity is the only religion where man is saved when he stops trying to save himself. Paul's telling us just that. He's telling us, We have to get the gospel right. And he gives us three things in this verse. One, he tells us righteousness is not something we can earn. It's a gift secured by God through Christ. So that when we accept Christ, God looks at us through the death of his son and declares us just. Secondly, he says the righteousness is from God. It's set over against what Paul could achieve on his own. And thirdly, that righteousness comes by faith. You see that? It is secured through faith in Christ. And even faith is a gift from God. So Paul is summarizing this first part and urging the Philippians to get the gospel right, to guard against those that preach something different, to examine their own lives, to make sure they have the gospel. So that's the first part of it. But not only that, Paul urges the Philippians to get their relationship with God right. Look at verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. All other religious leaders and all other religions, including Christianity, all leaders have died, including Christ. We see in our Bibles that Jesus, God in the flesh, raised from the dead. He's alive today. So we can relate to Jesus differently than anyone else can, to a religious leader. Our religious leader is alive. He is the true way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's alive and well, and we can know him. We can know Christ. And so Paul says, I want to know Christ, but he doesn't stop there. He says, and the power of his resurrection. Paul wants to know the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. This power is a life energy that 2,000 years ago rose this dead, lifeless corpse up out of the grave, alive again. And Paul is saying, I want to know the same power. I want it to come into my dead soul. I want it to give me life. And Paul is saying, not only does it give me new life, but it's the power at work to make me more holy. He's talking about supernatural character growth. He wants to be like Jesus. Now how does this happen? How does this happen? How does anger turn into forgiveness? Insecurity turn to confidence? by the power of God, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. I've heard Tim Keller share the story of a minister in Italy who noticed that there was a man who died several centuries ago. He was an unbeliever, and he was completely against Christianity. But he was a little afraid of it, too. So this man had a massive slab, concrete slab built on top of his grave, so that just in case he would not be raised from the dead, if in fact there was a general resurrection at the end of time. And on his casket and in the ground, he put all these little insignias all around the casket, saying things like, stay away from me, I don't want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. Don't touch me, stay away. All over his casket, these little insignias. Rather interesting, actually. But a fascinating thing happened. When he died, there And buried, there's a little acorn that had fallen to his grave site. And because now, 400 years later, that acorn had grown into a massive tree. It's a massive tree and it had split the slab. And now the slab was cut in half, destroyed by this towering tree. And there was this Italian minister, this minister looking at this grave site. He looked at it and said, if an acorn which has slow botanic growth and little power in it, weak as it is, if an acorn can split the slab of that great magnitude, a slab that was designed to keep this man from being part of the general resurrection, what do you think God's resurrection power in you can do? Think of the life in that. If the power, if his power can do that, and comes into your life, look at the things that you think of as immovable slabs in your life are. Bitterness, maybe insecurity, maybe your fears and self-doubts. Those things can be split off. Those things can be destroyed like that slab because of the power of the resurrection. Paul doesn't just want us to know Jesus, just to know facts about him or details about him. He wants us to know his power. He wants us to know his love, his wisdom and to be changed through this power that rose Jesus from the dead. There's nothing better and finer and more enjoyable than knowing Christ and knowing his power. He also says he wants to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. He is saying that he wants to know Christ better by experiencing suffering as Jesus did. Bold, bold statement. Because if we go out and live like Jesus, though... If we do what Jesus did, we will suffer. But Christ says, or Paul says here, I gladly accept this because in my sufferings, I will know Christ better. Even if it means dying like Christ, for Paul, he was willing to take up his cross and to follow Jesus. No suffering was too great. No suffering. And that's where verse 11 comes in as he closes this section. One reason Paul can say this is because he has the end in view. He wants to know Christ and to somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. It, it's not that he doubts whether this will happen. He most likely is uncertain at the timing. Might it happen during his lifetime? Will Christ come back? Or will, will Christ raise his body one day at the end? But the end is the same. Paul wants the glorious body he'll have after he's raised. He wants to have it now. He wants to be as close to that as he, he can. And he's telling us that he wants to be as close to perfect. As close to holy If he can in this life, he wants Christ's power to come in him and to change his heart. So in this emotionally charged section of the letter, Paul is carefully reminding the Philippians, again, you have to get the gospel right. But don't just stop there. Know Christ. Know his power. Know him on a deep, intimate level. Be like him. Get the gospel right. Follow Christ. Well, what does this mean for us today? What does this passage mean for us as a church? We've already talked about getting the gospel right and knowing that. So I want to end this morning asking two questions that focus on our relationship with Jesus, on our pursuit of knowing Christ. I'd encourage you to take some time this week to answer these two questions and perhaps even discuss them in your small groups. If you're not in a small group, we're going to start small groups all over this uh, city and country in September. Until then, meet up with another Christian. Perhaps even at the food court today, you might discuss these questions. Two things. One, what stirs your affections for Christ? What stirs them? And two, what robs your affections for Christ? What robs them? It's important to know Christ more deeply. If you're to do so, you need to know yourself. You need to know how God's made you. So let's touch, touch on these briefly. What stirs your affections for Christ? What brings you to a deeper worship and knowledge of Jesus? Just to give you some examples, for me it's a few different things. I find my affections are stirred for Christ when I have consistent time reading God's Word. While I don't always want to read, even this week there's times when I don't want to read God's Word. But when I do, when I open it, when I read it, my affections for God are always increased. In particular, during difficult times, I'm encouraged by the second coming of Christ and the the hope that we have in heaven gives me hope. And it also, also I find, stirs my affections to memorize scripture, something that I've really started doing afresh in the past few months. It has increased my love and knowledge of God. Seeing awe-inspiring things also stirs my affections for Jesus, whether it's looking at an ocean or a mountain or a sunset or even the greatest of man's inventions. It draws me to worship as as I see the airplanes go by my study window at our house in Murtis. Seeing an Emirates 380 take off yesterday right in front of my window drew me to worship as I thought, wow, how magnificent is God who made man and gave gifts to build airplanes that transport people in the sky all around the world. Unbelievable that right now, as I was watching that plane, there are a few hundred people flying in the air, being transported by this metal object to the other side of the globe. Unreal how magnificent Jesus is, he who holds the universe together by the word of his power. He's holding that airplane in the sky just by merely willing it so. Just taking time to stop and watch awe-inspiring things stirs my affections for Jesus. But it's key for me to stop. Actually, let it sink in, which is a big challenge for me. And reading about godly dead people, biographies, watching epic movies and other things stir my affections for Jesus. Now, what is it that stirs your desire to know Jesus more? Now, we are all individuals, so it will look different for you as it does for me. It most certainly will involve prayer and scripture reading to some extent. But but remember, we all connect with God. We all connect differently differently. To God, different spiritual disciplines encourage us in different ways and even in different times in our lives. God uses different means to stir our affections. Some might be moved by Christian biographies, staring at airplanes, but others maybe music or art or or different things. So perhaps you might think through those things this week and even pursue those things. Maybe you're here and you say, I don't know what stirs my affections. Perhaps nothing stirs my affections for Jesus. I'd urge you to prioritize knowing Christ and to take uh, reflection on your life to see what does move you to know Jesus. Well, the second question that we need to ask is what robs you of your affections for Christ? What robs you? For me, I, I've found that it's not necessarily big immoral things, although I'm tempted as anyone is, but instead it's often the morally, the neutral, morally neutral things that are form, far more apt to rob me of my joy these things become stumbling blocks for me. They're even silly things like sports. I can't follow sports too closely. I just can't. It's, I know it's crazy. I'll start to care too much and I'll follow too closely and, and become silly for me that I have my whole day ruined by a bunch of 20-year-olds on a football field. But it affects me. It affects me so much that I can't follow sports too closely or it will rob my affections of Jesus. Being tired also robs my affections. Don Carson said when he was here in Dubai a few months ago that sometimes... The most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap, get some rest, get some sleep. I find that when I'm tired, my affections for Jesus are robbed. I also find that getting up in a rush and not centering my life on the truths of the gospel in the morning robs my affections and it causes me to drift and forget why it is that I even work here. It's different for each of us, but we need to be aware of what hinders our affections. Hebrews 12 clearly states that we must throw off anything that hinders us. And the sin that so easily entangles us, we must leave behind. So two questions this week. What stirs your affections? What robs your affections? And start working on these so that we may know Christ more deeply and know the power of his resurrection in your life and in our lives so that he may change us. Well, in just a moment, we will sing a few more songs. I love singing with you. What a joy it is to sing here in this room on Fridays. The first song that we'll sing is called, All I Have is Christ. The chorus says, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. I ask as we sing, let's not merely mouth the words Let's inspect our hearts. Is that true for you? Is it true that all you have is Christ? If not, I urge you to repent of trusting your accomplishments, to repent of trusting your career, your family, your bank account, and confess that indeed all you have is Christ. For salvation and for everyday life, may we as a church make the joy of knowing Christ our only ambition. Let's pray. Father, you are better than life itself. You are better than our CVs, which for many of us is filled with religious accomplishments. But we count them all rubbish that we might gain Christ all that we bring to you we claim as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that we would pursue you, that we would know you more deeply, that we would know the power of your resurrection. Father, help cause our affections to be deeply stirred by Jesus, that as a church we would come to resemble Christ more each day. Father, that we in this life would somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead as we become more like Jesus. Father, all all we have is Christ. And for 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 this, most of all, Father, we thank you for sending him for us, to die for us, and to change us. May we know him more this day and every day. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.